0: Greetings, my friends, and welcome to the Paula Gordon Show, conversations with people at the leading edge. I'm Paula. Despite our pretensions, humans are a part of nature. Philosopher Frederick Foray has devoted a lifetime to creating a philosophy which will enable us to reintegrate ourselves into the complex ecology we inhabit. Understanding our role in the web of existence may help us use our creativity to survive.
1: So, We begin with a dynamic, relational, growing, novelty-producing, and and sometimes novelty-retaining universe, in which then from the retained novelties, still further novelties can emerge. And, uh, And those things are still not at the level of living organisms. They are still more complicated, but you can see that there's no real... Uh, necessary line between them because, for example, a virus is quasi-living, it's a parasite that doesn't live until it is actually in a host, but then it does live, I mean, or does it? Uh, There's a question of whether a parasite is or is not, I I mean that, I mean a virus, virus. is or is not uh, really living. But uh, But it sure does have an effect! Bacteria definitely are living. And, uh, and so on. Complexity releases new possibilities for emergence. And at a certain degree, I'm not saying a line, greater and greater complexity and the evolution of more and more neural firings, which can come together as brains and so forth, um, now we're talking living things, but at a certain level of um, complexity, then personhood—the the. the behaviors of personality, of personhood, appears in the universe.
0: Philosopher Frederick Ferray is a leader in the constructive school of postmodernist philosophy. He is the author of a three-volume series spanning the history of Western philosophy and presenting an ethical foundation for creating our futures. He is also the author of the influential and widely studied Philosophy of Technology. Bill Russell and I were pleased to spend several days exploring what we think of as applied philosophy with Dr. Ferre in the spring of two thousand and eight. This program is the first installment Dr. Frederick Fer, when we started this adventure, it was the end of the twentieth century, right in the breakpoint of the last decade of the 20th century. And part of what was so exciting about that time was a sense that there was an enormous amount going on And in no small measure, I at least felt that we had started it to go out and figure out what it was, to go exploring with the the deepest sense of the world what was happening, because we bumped around and we knew some things, but there was this sense that it was more than just the usually, as my old friend from Vienna used to say. And we also began these conversations with a sense that there was real darkness on the horizon, that these were not good, (laughs) it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Thank you, Charles Dickens. In the intervening years, I've had a more and more focused sense of that, and yet I come back to you to start this part of our infinite conversation. That wasn't illusory, was it? There really is a big thing happening in our lifetimes, isn't there?
1: Enormous, right?
0: Do we know what it is yet?
1: People trying to put words to it. A lot of people. Some, the age of globalism. Uh, some uh, post-capitalist mm-hmm. uh, society. I used the phrase the un. Well, I find now sort of unfortunate phrase of postmodern. But at that time, the time you're referring to, um, it hadn't been entirely taken over by the deconstruction crew in France. But uh, well, that's an
0: important too. part of this process, isn't it? Because when, when Bill and I came by, out of college,
2: by, by whom you mean Foucault, yes, Derrida, Derrida and and Slater, the, so.
0: the the deconstructionists yes. who glommed onto that word early on and took yes. it as if they were the ones who had invented and owned it. What? What were they about, because, in a way, it seems like they were sort of the logical conclusion of what had happened in science over three hundred and fifty years?
1: I think they were, and they were in their in what they took their aim at, I think in very large part, they were right to and want that to was deconstruct this uh, this materialistic mechanistic worldview, uh, the linear thought patterns only the suppression of feeling, the uh, monetization of all values, the various things that they attacked. And I think rightly so. And um, I tried in the first part of living in value to show the inadequacies of just exactly the same things. So I'm largely with them in their looking at what they saw to be dark and also finding it dark and destructible. And then, the difference being that I believe in constructive postmodernism, which means that you don't just stop with the ashes and the
2: rubble around,
1: and you uh, try to do some building again.
2: I, I, I have the sense, and this is just a um, probably bad history and not knowing <laughs> enough, but that part of what was going on with the deconstructionists as well, I mean, I, I, I somehow in my mind, connect that with Franz Fanon. Oh, yeah. oh out of South at, Africa. Well, North Africa, I think, but I'm not sure of that. Uh, but who was looking at the underclass and the oppression, and it seems yeah. that a lot of the driver behind this deconstructionist was to take apart the institutions yeah. that had been used to, uh, to oppress view, to oppress That's large right. numbers of people. So the motivation was, was noble. Yes. The consequences, we can talk about.
0: Well, I want to ask one more question that follows on that. It, it, my history of philosophy is more or less dependent on going back and checking out what you've written about it. <laughs> I remember the existentialists during having been in college in the 60s and having really been quite impacted by those ideas. Do the postmodern deconstructionists Come immediately after the existentialist. Yeah, Is that pretty, what happens?
1: Pretty soon thereafter. Yes.
0: Well, again, they're, they're, as with all evolution, nothing comes out of nothing.
1: <laughs> no, that's right. And the the stress, for example, in Jean-Paul Sartre's stress on radical freedom, mm-hmm. and that you have to redecide every day if you're going to continue to be a waiter. <laughs> with his example, right? So that uh, the waiter has to continually reaffirm his waiterness. Um,
0: uh, that seems an unfortunate choice of occupation to be focused on, but he's yeah. French. <laughs> but he was French, I
1: Well, <laughs> yes. anyway, the, I think that the uh, stress on um, the destructive powers of human freedom to read a text in various ways, to pull it apart, um, to disassociate it with this historical setting or even the intentions of the authors. Many of these things, uh, sure, they had a root, a growing root in existentialism.
0: Some of what we talked about the last conversation that we had was how centrally important it is to think about context. And you had set the framing for me of Heidegger being someone who had really helped us understand context. As I then proceeded to really think more carefully through your philosophy of technology, part of why I ask you about what are the big things happening is that it's a relatively new notion in the Western world that context really matters. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that thinking about what a constructive postmodern philosopher does really has to be set in the grounding out of which you and your big ideas came. Is that true of everything? Because when we last talked, you were ready to say context is a biggie.
1: It's a biggie. And I think there is no real meaning without context. I really believe that all meaning depends on its context. Um, And so the issues of largest context, how large you're willing to go, um, the positivists, they start at the lowest level, um, really don't want to go much beyond the context of daily life and scientific laboratories in which the statements that are made are kept very close to your sense experiences. And that's a minimalist approach. In fact, I had a fling with that when I was in graduate school <laughs> and, uh,
2: and, and as- But you didn't marry. <laughs> it
1: Didn't marry, no. Even as early as my first book, Language, Logic, and God, I saw difficulties in the verification principle that makes the context really exclusively uh, narrowed to what you can verify by your five senses. I mean, five senses, that we have a lot more experience than the five senses. We have internal experiences, too, of very important sorts, kinesthetic experiences, balance, and uh, all sorts of things. That's and before you get to heaviness. aesthetics. Yeah. Well, before
2: you but, get to the C word, uh, consciousness. Uh, oh, my yes. Oh, by the way. <laughs> uh, by the way.
1: Yeah. But anyhow, the, the uh, issue of context for me is remains very vital, and that's why I still believe that even though we can get along in for practical purposes in lots of ways, but in lesser contexts. We can't get along, absolutely can't get along with no context. I mean, that's totally that, impossible. Someone with no context- There's no, no meaning no, in
0: that, is there? No
1: awareness, no meanings, no, that's right. I mean, there's no such thing as contextlessness unless somebody had a stream of experience that just lasted the instant of the present, had no memory, no anticipation, and then there would be no context, I guess, because context does require putting some things together.
2: I Presumably, think... there is a theological perspective. I just have to believe that there is some definition of God that you know is contextless. Contextless. Uh, that, that is, you know, the you know the, 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 the even prior to the prime mover. Yes. Uh, but that is that is so distant from anything that we would inhabit.
1: Well, I, I, may I just? Uh, yes make a slight correction it's a friendly amendment (laughs) no you're wrong (laughs) in those ways of thinking uh, God has no context but God offers the context for everything and so God is not contextless in the sense of making the context for all of us it's just that you can't from those ways of thinking, put him, him, it, <laughs> they, yeah, uh, into a larger context because the, God, by definition, is the largest. And therefore, it doesn't permit anything to surround him.
0: You spend a good deal of time thinking about God and what that uh, the aura of that word um, has to do with the human experience in living and value toward a constructive postmodern ethics. Let's come back when I want to ask you another big context question, Dr. Frederick Ferray. Dr. Frederick Ferray, as you know, I am Paula Gordon, and this is Bill Russell, and we are glad that you are with us as well.
1: Hallelujah! <laughs> I'm glad to be with you today. Again.
0: Thank you again to continue an infinite conversation. In terms of context, I'm go- this is a test, Dr. Ferrey, for me. Polymythic, personalistic organicism. Wow. How'd I do? You got it perfect. And your mother would be proud of me. My mother would be proud. That's right. Well, I say these... Nice, but proud. <laughs> Well, she wouldn't be too surprised I had to practice. Yes. Your... Ideas which build on the entire Western tradition and to which you've given a lifetime of thought from rigorous philosophical predicates. Invite me to think about a new way of thinking, to set a context somewhat differently, and I would appreciate an explanation of what... and the three words together are just real juicy. Polymythic, mm-hmm. personalistic, mm-hmm. organicism. These are three ideas that will be a new kind of a trinity that come together in a worldview that I I would like to explore.
1: Okay, start with the last one, which is the broadest. That's always the genus term, right? And then you modify the organicism by personalistic and poly... modify personalistic by polymythic as well. Okay, so we start with organicism. And that's where I am very much indebted to Alfred North Whitehead and to others of Whitehead's generation, or almost, um, Charles Hartshorne is another very important uh, one for me. But in addition, others uh, of the what I would consider organismic, um, as in Henri Bergson, the French uh, philosopher, um, and the The essentials of organism, of the philosophy of organism, if I can just whitehead, is the connectedness of everything and uh, relationship. It's the philosophy of relationships, or it's relational philosophy. You could use that for organicism as well, because it doesn't necessarily mean, the way it's been in the tradition, it doesn't necessarily mean living organisms Mm. only. Living organisms are a high development out of a more organismic or organic under-structure of the universe on this view. And so the worldview, the organismic worldview, starts with the idea that the elementary aspects of reality are intimately relational and relational in the sense that they grasp each other in a way that's analogous to the way that experience grasps other objects and incorporates it in itself. So that there is a quick and easy move from the organismic philosophy to what some people call panpsychism, that is that everything has an, an analog of experience. Um, everything fundamental, the the least bits of things, what uh, what Whitehead called actual occasions. And if I can just inject one or two technical terms in this, Whitehead believed that actual occasions prehend one another. Not it's from the word apprehension, right? Oh. Um, not
0: prehensile. It,
1: it's from the, but that's from prehensile too. Preh- that means to grasp. Oh. Right? Both of them. Oh. A <laughs> foolish oh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, So, yes, grasping, uh, apprehending, comprehending, all of these are the uh, basic um, terms of relationality that an organismic thinker would like to put at the center of things. And that causes or offers the deepest context for things. And I I just want to say one word about getting to real organisms from there, Mm. and that is that from the Whiteheadian or organismic point of view, it's not an absolute, at no place is there an absolute line between the dead and the living. That is that the universe, in one sense, is alive. It's value creating, it's, uh, in a very dull sense, aware. It may well be a boring awareness, and that is because there's so much repetition uh, in the uh, early low electronic or even the quark levels of reality.
2: Or it could be, I mean, the time scale could be different. Mm-hmm. Universes operate on a different time scale. Mountains be. work on a different time scale.
1: That's right. And th- at the very lowest level, the very most elementary, uh, it would be so uh, fast, right? That the, the interchanges of, of prehensions would be so very, very fast that um, one would probably not with our instruments be able to determine them. But we can see... Wavelengths. Uh, in we know that atoms are also built out of waves. They're not just particles. They're wave right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, what you've got really is a ver- a churning universe uh, of what Whitehead called a vibratory universe in his wonderful science in the modern world.
0: And this is way before string theory and vibration. Way
1: before, yeah. This is 19. 19- published in, well, I was given as a lecture in 27, I think. Oh. So that was soon after Einstein's theory of uh, relativity came out, and Whitehead was one of the very first to be able, because he was a great mathematician, he'd be, he was a mathematician before he was a philosopher.
0: And as we said in the last conversation, it was he and Bertrand Russell.
1: Exactly, yeah. yeah. Russell and he were both powerful the mathematicians. The other Russell. <laughs> yes, <bro>. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> there may be a relationship there. So. Oh,
0: let us claim it, whether it's true or not. Yeah, yeah. Now, it is important to say this isn't woolly headed thinking. This is a great mathematician. It's
1: very rigorous.
0: And yeah. a, one of the people who is the founder of modern logic, That's who right. is entering into these conversations at the time of Einstein, well informed of what's That's happening. Right and comes to these conclusions about a different way than Einstein articulates about right. understanding of the universe.
1: Right. He claimed that uh, Einstein was just too conservative. Many people think Einstein is the great revolutionary. Well, he was, of course. He this is a yes and, isn't it? <laughs> and yeah. But Whitehead wanted to be more revolutionary and not hold to the uh, modern uh, me- mechanistic uh, framework.
0: And this modern starts with Galileo. You're not talking about the 1920s being modern no, and, and no. flappers. You're talking about a way Galileo. of thinking.
1: That's right. That's a way of thinking. That's right. Yeah, there are roots even before Galileo, way back in Democritus and the ancient Greece and so on. But yeah, Galileo really, let's take him as the beginning of the modern because he explicitly um, emphasized the mathematical character of reality, and in this he talked about numbers and so on. He explicitly uh, argued that there are no uh, qualities in nature, but we supply them. The colors and the hues and the smells, all of these things are subjective. And he said, for example, he gave a wonderful uh, a good example, he said, the itch is not in the feather, it, the feather tickles you but there, it, it is it, you that is the tickle and, uh, and that went into the modern um, bag of tricks by saying the beauty is in the eye of the beholder um, there is no such as be- thing as beauty in reality it's only a subjective projection upon things um, if the tree falls in the forest another cliche of modern philosophy uh, it only makes a sound because there's an eardrum somewhere attached to a... All mirror. of these
0: things, and you're talking about the organicism and the big world view these things that could easily be put off in philosophy class, these are fundamental to how we get through any given moment, day, life, and the view offered by these big sweeping undercurrents that I, I guess you could call metaphysical, how we yeah. know what we think of as reality yeah. Whitehead is one of those people who helps turn a big page.
1: Yeah, he is. Very big. If, if we follow him, he turns a big page. He, he tries to turn the page. And a lot of people don't want to go with him. As you know, we've discussed this before, that he's not terribly uh, well-regarded, partly because of too many neologisms that he made up and so forth. I'm trying, in what I do as a sort of neo-whiteheadian, to get rid of most of the most of the jargon. That'd be a good thing. <laughs> yeah, it is a good thing if I can do it.
2: You mentioned panpsychism.
1: Yeah, jargon. Sorry.
2: No, I, I, well, it may be, <laughs> but, I, but I, right. it comes to mind because we had, as you know, a, a similar conversation with Stuart Kaufman last week, who was a theoretical biologist, and he was talking with. A colleague of ours who is a psychiatrist and is working with Tibetans on mind-body medicine, on depression, on the physiology of it, on how meditation relates to that. And as they were talking, one of the things that came out of it, they ended up talking about... God help us, the collapse of the quantum (laughs) waveform. Which
0: surprised us all. Uh, Well,
2: it it surprised me. (laughs) I was afraid it would show up, and it did. But, you know, uh, the the psychiatrist's name is Charles Ray Salm and they were talking back and forth about some theories that that, uh, Stuart Kaufman has, and by one interpretation, the multi-many universe interpretation of the collapse of the quantum waveform. This is the Schrodinger wave that is the wave that is light and or, or particle or wave, depending on yeah. you know what's happening and the, and the role of the observer. But but remarkably, that multi-universe interpretation uh, from a certain perspectives, as Charles said, what leads to panpsychism. So these are not ideas that sort of flashed in the pan no. in the 1920s no. and have gone away. There are still people in trying to understand the world we inhabit, right. the predicates for that world, and how we can get through that world. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, is, this is all very current. This is not just a passing it's fad. very
1: current, and I'm perfectly willing with the qualifications that people try to figure out what I mean by it, to accept the phrase panpsychist uh, as something that uh, pertains to the organic. Uh, I simply the, had never
0: heard the term before, so...
1: Twice, twice in a week, yeah, that is Yeah, that's kind okay. of surprising. So the short well, course on that term is. is... Everywhere there is at least something similar to mentality,
0: mm. right?
1: Psychism, in this sense, is the psyche, the, the, the mind. Mm. And uh, that which is analogous to mentality, from my perspective and Whitehead's, is that the tiniest elements of reality apprehend each other, or prehend each other, mm-hmm. and incorporate aspects of each other into their uh, character too.
0: This is a dramatically different worldview than most people are accustomed to. So now, and it, it's wonderful that you tell me I should be looking backward as we look at polymythic, personalistic organicism. I had to read it off the ceiling. You notice that?
2: (laughs) 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 Um, We've at
0: least gotten started on the organicism part with a wonderful introduction to that which I had never heard really much of as a student, which is the whole Whiteheadian perspective, probably because somebody was telling me something else.
2: Well, in in that context, you know, you mentioned how, how. Difficult it is to get people to talk about it. It would seem to me that part of the challenge in this, what you're describing, is it makes humans the non—not the center of the universe. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. It. it Puts us in our place. Puts us in our place. It is uh-huh. it is it is extraordinarily humbling to the species not if we utterly, take this seriously.
1: Not utterly unique.
2: That's right. Let but us there come is back. That's
1: uniqueness, and that's the personalistic. Which the I know you
0: naturalistic, personalistic. <laughs> we'll be back in just a moment with organicism. Actually, we'll be with Dr. Frederick Foray. We yeah. hope that you will be with Bill Russell. I am Paula Gordon. Dr. Foray. The three of us are very interested in you being with us when we return in a moment. What fun it is to be here at Dickinson College with Dr. Frederick Farré, with you, with Bill Russell, I am Paula Gordon. One more little teeny moment with the organ, the organ, organicism, which also at some point you say organism, so I have to slow down and think about that. When your basic premise is to look at what I think of as life... When you're starting with however one defines it, at its most elemental, and you go all the way back to the Big Bang, Mm. you're talking about everything that matters. Not to be confused with materialist and matter matters. Mm -hmm. You're talking about all the big, all the big everythings, which is the work of a philosopher, right?
1: Right. Not all philosophers do that. Some scorn it, I must say. Uh, The Metaphysical Society of America is... uh, down to just a few members now. (laughs) Is that
0: because very few of the philosophers want to think about that big picture thing?
1: Yes, I think that's right. They don't want to. They're tired of it, or they are cynical about whether any profit can be uh, found in that path.
0: Would that be with an IT or a... P-R-O-P-H-E-T,
1: Profit. <laughs> well, I don't know how you use <laughs> it. Profit or Profit? Yeah, profit, yeah. <laughs> I think uh, a lot of folks in philosophy find it more profitable in the it sense Thank you. to explore relatively small issues of um, meaning, interpretation of claims, statements, Sentences?
0: Is this the whole problem of specialization that has it, infected the university? It,
1: it has, and it has infected philosophy as well. And we metaphysicians, uh, I think, are insisting that those things are perfectly legitimate to do. Fine. But don't leave out the context. Uh-huh. Right? The context that is the, the context within which all of these other things are given meaning.
0: And I want to just insert that metaphysics, as you say, is an ugly, nasty word in wood. Would that it went away and it was only because it came after something else when Aristotle said it. Physics. <laughs> after physics, that's right. That it's just about thinking about knowing and what we know and how we know it. Isn't that what metaphysics is?
2: Living, living.
1: Well, it starts uh, the, the question of the fundamentals of reality, of being, and then epistemology, the knowing, and then ethics, Yeah.
2: Well, and, and it, part of the challenge, it would seem, I and mean, you don't go to many dinner parties and have people talking about philosophy and any of its manifestations.
0: After your sophomore year in, in college.
2: Well, even then, I think it's probably a challenge. But it, it seems to me that, that part of the, the, not only the challenge to philosophers, uh, but the obligation, particularly mm-hmm. for people who are rewarded in some fashion for their work in philosophy, is some social obligation, yeah. to the community and it seems that part of the danger and the danger in the specialization is that it, it becomes so remote from the world I inhabit mm-hmm. and most people inhabit that it becomes essentially irrelevant uh, and it also seems that, that that is a consequence of the, the drivers in particularly academic institutions yeah. and that both of those uh, are, are serious challenges to our, to the the knowledge and the perspectives we need, particularly in very challenging times,
1: and I think it's structured into the reward system mm-hmm. right? in academia. Mm-hmm. Uh, number of articles published, and I mean this is quantized, and uh, you know all the rest. And committees tend to weigh the pages that people have published mm-hmm. in order to so.
0: We've it done it organicism. It. I just wanted to make sure that everybody was real clear about yeah. this foundation on which we okay. are building. Oh,
2: you, were, you were going someplace, I think. I was. Welcome. Did you finish? Yeah. <laughs> okay,
1: I was just going to say that the big questions that do affect your life, I mean, the ones that people really ought to be talking about at the dinner table or over a glass of uh, something. Milk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like... Are human beings free? Or are we all destined uh, or determined uh, by forces other than our values to pursue certain uh, courses historically and so forth? These are huge and fascinating questions. And in many ways, our voting patterns and other things like that hang on the question right now. One of the issues, if I may Mm -hmm. uh, just bring uh, the present uh, primaries um, in the democratic race, everybody must know now that we are talking in 2008 (laughs) in March, um, is um, I think that Barack Obama is trying to emphasize the extent to which human history is operated on principles of freedom and that thing, real change, deep change, I mean the metaphysical change, mm-hmm. is possible. Uh, and there, I'm not sure, I don't want to put Hillary Clinton in a box that she hasn't uh, uh, permitted me to do, but she sounds less interested or less convinced that there are large freedoms to choose uh, the sorts of things that your existentialists said, by the way. You know, freedom to make a difference, to choose, well, and, make ourselves.
2: And talking uh, about free will can sound like an abstraction. You're, we're talking about responsibility. Yes. Do I or do I? If I have no free will, then arguably I'm, you know, I don't have Not to be responsible. If yeah. I do have free will, then arguably, at least arguably, I I have responsibility to myself, I have responsibility for my behaviors, and I have responsibility to my my community. That is radically different, functionally. It feels
1: different, too.
2: That, too, yeah. I
1: mean, you you probably would feel uh, much more anguish uh, if you felt that you were responsible for having made some change and failed to do so, for instance.
0: Uh, I don't want to get, as you don't want to get all wrapped up in current politics, but to take this a level higher, if one is committed to a constrained orthodoxy that happens to be Christian, and one, or any other orthodoxy, one is, in the word I think you use, is a, an obscurantist.
2: Obscurantism. Um,
0: that one is committed to a status quo.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And if one does not come out of a strict orthodoxy of any kind Mm. and is willing to say yes and Mm -hmm. rather than no and or yes, no. (laughs) The, The fundamental issues, again, keeping it out of the particulars, does one choose to have an open system or a closed system. Mm-hmm. That is one way to articulate some of what you're talking about. If yeah. your fundamental idea is that, that that we are responsible, we ought to have a little humility, Bill talks about mm-hmm. being put in our place, that we are part of something way bigger, that we are an ecology, another of the words yeah. that you bring into play. It makes a difference in how we go grocery shopping, what we choose to buy or not buy, how we spend our time, if we are going to go dancing or painting or if we're going to spend money as recreation. Yeah. I mean, all of these things are directly connected. Absolutely. And it comes to how, what do I think is real? Yeah. Do I care about a future for the planet? Yeah. Or am I only... So none of this is all out there philosophy. And I want to go back to Whitehead. He gives us a chance to say it's it's living on. it's real, all the way down and all the way up. And as I remember, metaphysics has cosmology as well as Ontology. Right. Yes. How good am I true. doing, Doc? Hey. <laughs> I still. I have my what? own, Paula's glossary.
1: I swear the jargon's coming Well, yeah, you right. I'm Well, you're well behaved. That's right.
0: I literally wrote down. <laughs> I wrote down a a little glossary because these are good words. They yes, are they ancient are words, words, and words matter. Yes. Now the fact that I can't remember epistemology from something else, and I can't. But, uh, doesn't mean that it, these are not absolutely core, critical issues to getting up in the morning and making it through the day and making your family's breakfast and whatever. Uh, and if we're going to have a planet, mm-hmm. so oh, back my. to the organicism. Yes. Okay. And if we have done enough of that, then we can move one
1: step, which to the is to personalism. the personalism. Okay. Well, um, as you could gather from the way in which I argued that. Uh, there is at the very funda- foundations of reality, dynamism and relationship, and and uh, grasping, uh, to use prehension in its uh, more ordinary civilian clothes, mm. um, and in a very positive sense, in a positive way, mm-hmm. dynamic, and which also allows for. You have to remember that in the in the cosmic soup, right, way back after the Big Bang. Um, Novelty did emerge. It can emerge. That's wonderful, isn't it? I mean, it didn't just stay uh, bare electrons f- flying around forever. Things bound to one another, then clumps formed, and molecules, and, and then heavy elements in the great pressures that, uh, that stars Create from their gravitation and their nuclear fires, right? So creating the heavy elements that could never exist without this, in the the iron and the, you know all of those things. And this just is. And that just is. I'm not. Yeah, everybody sort of agrees. Well, within a certain
2: <laughs> there are fringe. Theo- I was going to say some theological
1: exceptions. <laughs> and we've
0: talked to some of those people. <laughs> yeah.
1: Okay. Well, I, we don't take them seriously today. No. But. The fact is that, so we begin with a dynamic, relational, growing, novelty-producing, and and sometimes novelty-retaining universe, in which then from the retained novelties, still further novelties can emerge. And... uh, And those things are still not at the level of living organisms, they are still more complicated, but you can see that there's no real uh, necessary line between them because, for example, a virus is quasi-living, it's a parasite that doesn't live until it is actually in a host but then it does live, I mean, or does it? There's a question of whether a parasite is or is not, I, I mean that, I mean a virus, a virus. Yeah, yeah. is or is not uh, really living, but uh, But it clearly, sure does have an effect! Bacteria definitely are living, and uh, and so on. Complexity releases new possibilities for emergence, and at a certain degree I'm not saying a line greater and greater complexity and the evolution of more and more neural firings which can come together as brains and so forth um, now we're talking living things but at a certain level of um, complexity then personhood the the behaviors of personality, of personhood appears in the universe. And I think personalistic organicism wants to say that's a very important thing to notice. not that there's a sheer cutoff there. There are some personalists who don't well, I mean, at Boston University, where I did my undergraduate work, there was some a of your
0: undergraduate work, some
1: of my undergraduate Not oh, uh, that's right. After I left Oberlin, thank you, with great regret. Uh,
0: <laughs> Forgive me, Boston University, way. <laughs>
1: you see, the world knows we know each other. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, the person, personalistic tradition, so called in America, really got its foundation at BU and from. Uh, a philosopher named Baun. And um, Baun believed that there was a sharp difference between persons and non persons. Now, a Whiteheadian would not. A, pers- a Whiteheadian would hold that there was a continuity between non persons first non living, then living and different degrees of livingness, more intensity and so forth, and more complexity until then the the behaviors associated with personality emerge. So from a Whiteheadian point of view, the personalistic organicism isn't a contrast term. It's a specific singling out of, hey, look, these are very important things that happen. And because, uh, for instance, the capacity to deal imaginatively through thoughts or images, with the absent from the press. The deal imaginatively, wow, to be able to, for you and me, uh, here in the, uh, uh, in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, to think about the French Alps. And we can imagine that, we can take the Alps into account. Uh, we can wonder whether they are snow-covered at the moment, and we think they probably are. Or are they having a bad year for snow? How is the skiing there? What kind of pack? And so forth and so forth. We can take account mentally of the uh, the absent from us. And thanks to that, we can anticipate or think about different futures. We can examine intellectually or mentally alternative futures, and that gives us a chance to choose between futures, depending upon our norms, our preferences, our sense of what is right.
0: And based on our metaphysics, we're going to be back in just a moment with Dr. Frederick Ferre. Bill Russell, I. Paula Gordon, you, please come back when we return. We're back with Dr. Frederick Farré, Bill Russell, I, Paula Gordon. Dr. Farré, we have been cordially welcomed at Dickinson College here in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. One of the things that is so exciting to me as I read your philosophy and as you speak to other philosophies, and especially as you speak toward the f- into and through and looking forward into the philosophy of technology, thinking about where we are, that which we have created, where we're going with that. You consistently talk about us and, and as you talk about this uh, this continuity of life forms, non-life, through-life forms, you invariably say, and all of the other creatures, and those that we don 't know about, mm-hmm. and I mean so you 're always opening up the system and always questioning the absolute centrality of homo sapiens so called we can talk about that part later the, the human part this is a big change in and of itself after several thousand years of, yeah. of humans being planted right in the middle of everything, and boy, have we ha- held to pay on the planet mm-hmm. for only human beings being considered as important so the personalistic of which you speak isn't about me
1: no or even about just humans because nobody really knows where the level of personhood begins if it begins at all uh it may no i don't want to go that far (laughs) some some panpsychists would say it goes all the way down personhood Mm. i don't think so I tend to think that it would help mental clarity to acknowledge that although it's dynamic and exciting and generative of beauty and uh, novelty, that that doesn't mean necessarily that it's personal because it may not have the kind of freedom, uh, the the capacity to, especially we need symbols Mm. to be able to deal at the level that we do with the absent and with the future.
0: Symbols like language.
1: Symbols like language, exactly. Um, And what I'm hoping we will um, be able to find out in the long run Mm -hmm. is whether there are other forms of life in this universe uh, that have reached or exceeded. The level of being able to deal with language and with uh, free symbols and with taking moral responsibility that humans have.
0: Well, that as you know, exciting. we have friends who are bonobos, so this is a very personal Absolutely. subject with
2: us. This, uh, a slightly still jargon, I think, but a perhaps more familiar term is that seems connected to this is agency. Mm. Yeah. How do you connect this?
0: First, first, what is agency, and then well, how do you connect it? the
2: connection between that and, and personalistic. Mm. Yes. Are the are they, synonyms right. one lead to the other? What's the... I
1: think they're really closely related because there are behaviors, we all know, there are behaviors that human beings have that are not actions. For example, if a doctor hits me on the mm. kneecap and my leg bounces, that's a reflex. And it's a behavior, but it's not an action. It's really something else. And I would define uh, actions as being generated by the personal self.
0: So, is that a sense of agency?
1: Yeah, that would seems to me that that's what you mean, isn't it? That's exactly what an agent, which is capable of agency, and only agents capable of agencies are really moral, morally responsible. Otherwise, you would attribute agency. I don't think we can attribute agencies even to some very high, beautiful animals like leopards and mm. so on, who uh, may have a certain degree of choice in their way of living, but are, for the most part, um, wonderfully designed to exhibit their instinctual uh, Leopardness, DNA, leopardness, right. <laughs> and we, we wouldn't really blame a, a leopard from tearing a little um, gazelle to pieces, although it would be bloody and painful and, and horrible to watch, probably, for us. But there's no moral agency there to blame. And so where morality starts biting that's where you find agency, and only there, I, I believe.
2: That, that, your, your example of the reflex reminds me of Paul Ekman. Hmm. And his talk, he's done a basic life work is the expression of emotions, uh, particularly the, the facial expression. In humans. In oh, humans, yeah. in humans. <clears throat> and he's done recently a good deal of work with His Holiness the Dalai Lama on the subject of emotions. Particularly ah. destructive emotions. Daniel Goldman Goldman uh, written, written a book about the meetings and the discussions that they had. But I think of that in the terms of the reflex that yes. you talk about, that his, that's the same character, characterization he uses for emotions. I mean, that is his definition of an emotion. If it gets past that, then you're talking about moods or something else. I but, 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 and, and really looking at the physiology of the brain, that the, this triggering mechanism—something happens and the emotions kick in without any it's mediation. Republic, well, without any agency.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
2: which is a striking connection. Uh, and part mm-hmm. of the research they're doing, which makes this really exciting, is. Paul thinks that by some of the techniques that Tibetans use and other people use meditation they're actually able to slow down the, the millisecond responses, ah, the reflexive responses, that they can actually mediate, ah. which adds a, a, a to me a curious. Well, of,
0: it puts choice in there. It, you know, puts, it becomes agency. Yes, there. yes, yes. yes. Then, sort of
2: agency. Well, yeah. and, and
0: and the and the excitement about this is that in the West, I mean, nobody knew about these milliseconds for a long time. This is relatively new, and the Tibetans know that you can go to a place that. Keeps you from being reactive, I think is the word. And if you think of the emotions as being this knee-jerk thing, and before you act on the emotions, which is where we all get in trouble or yeah. whatever. But if one and and this was the excitement of the science was if one could get in there and make that a little bigger yeah. pause, so that then you could be... stop and say, Do I want to be angry?
2: Reflection well, can it, come yes. in. Yes, and that
0: neocortex and, thing. Yeah. <laughs> and
2: to add a little <laughs> jargon, I think I think this is a correct usage. Uh, Paul talks about this, and I think is a standard in their area they, they talk about their refractory period yes where you know you know somebody slaps you and you just instantaneously do something Ooh. or something you know hear her loud sound right. something snaps right yeah yep. uh, but the you know the, the multiple emotions are all within that, mm-hmm. that, that and they're range. coming out of the and limbic
0: then, system which comes well before oh, the yes. neocortex right. so
2: and then, after that refractory period, then the brain, the, the frontal cortex, or more nominally responsible uh, parts, get involved, and you sort of begin to adjust yeah. consciously, or at least not as reflexively. Mm-hmm. And, and the domain that they're operating in is this refractory period. And, yeah. and they, the, the, my understanding is they're talking about that being a mutable. Mutable? Mutable, yeah. that is to say, Under under our, if we choose to yeah. and do the the necessary work, right, this yeah. isn't free, that we can actually change those reflexes, which to me is a, a, a striking yeah. parallel to, the, to to what you're talking about from That's a purely very... philosophical standpoint, but also in terms of how we live our lives. Absolutely, Again, it goes to the yeah. in a sense to the core of agency.
1: What uh, Spinoza, another great philosopher, but quite a distance from Whitehead in lots of ways, um, understood the emotions to be uh, not actions at all, but passions, and passions, as he sees it, we think of being passionate and very uh, active, but that's a mistake, he would say, because to be in the grip of passion is to be passive. I mean, passion and passivity come really... I've not thought about that. And And you're at its its whim. You're being ruled by emotion rather than by your reason, with the simple. Well,
0: he was only three hundred years before his time. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and the is and part of what's so exciting yeah. about this is the science you're talking about, and the ideas, is that they are beginning to mingle, and yes. again, it, to be alive at a time when these great ideas over yes. three or four or five or six hundred years are beginning to come right. together, and just a little tweak here, and a little three thought there, and oh, yeah. oh, we could, oh, we could have something quite new here.
1: We really could, and if there were the possibility of making that space for reason, if I can just use the term reason instead of cortex. <laughs> uh, Thank you. And, and values, mm-hmm. because the reason brings in um, and is in always immersed in values, preferences, and uh, senses of uh, right and wrong, up and down, better and worse, all of those things. If the reason can in and guard us against our worst. I, I, is that what anger management courses do? It when, may
0: be. They just don't know what they're doing yet. Yeah,
1: I mean, I, I don't. I've never participated in this. That's not.
2: I, been I should problem.
0: have, but I haven't.
2: <laughs> Part of the danger with particularly leading aid science is one: leading edge mm-hmm. science is frequently wrong, mm-hmm. and, yeah. and it's real easy to forget that. And secondly leading-edge scientists tend to be a fairly intense group of people, and they are ex- you know, they're expert in, in that particular domain. So when they use words, they use them in an expert way. When yes. they use concepts, they use them in an expert way. When those of us who are not experts and don't know how those words work see those go by, we say, ah, I can have some. It, it is literally, the danger is the saucer's apprentice. Mm-hmm. It's a familiar <laughs> metaphor that you will just get just enough to get the system loose yeah. and then
0: a consultant comes along then yeah.
2: ugly things happen <laughs> yeah
0: i'm going to take that. us away so we can come back to the pan mythic in oh, just yes. a moment yes. dr frederick foray you bill russell i will all return momentarily We have a couple more minutes in this part of our infinite conversation with Dr. Frederick Ferray. What a pleasure to be with you here in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. Bill Russell, I, Paula so Gordon. So
1: glad to welcome you here. Oh well, thank you. New town.
0: And it's old town. A Lovely old new town, new old town.
1: Yes.
0: Organism, organ. It's easy to think orgasmic when I say that, and it's not all that far not distant, right. is it? No, okay, no, no. organismic and. We've, I think enough that we have a sense of that um, the personalistic have we gone enough a yeah, far enough I with think that? that's we only have a couple minutes let's get started at least on the poly not to be confused with pan uh, the poly
1: mythic poly mythic I it's at another level that we're talking about now the um, the concept of myth is something that I've done quite a lot of work with and i don't want to be misunderstood. Sometimes it's used, usually it's used, as something that's false Mm. and discardable. Uh, That's just part of the modern consciousness, I'm afraid, Mm -hmm. and I disagree with that.
0: And many of us have been helped by the work of Joseph Campbell to think differently about that.
1: Yes, and it's by no means radical of me now to say that by myth, I mean the ultimate context shaping uh, stories or conceptions, images, ideas, however you want to put it, uh, that uh, give the ultimate meaning, context for our thinking and our lives. So it's even beyond philosophical or metaphysical uh, context, which is, I think, the broadest possible for conceptual uh, matters of trying to understand, but going beyond even them to the mythic uh, level contains uh, implicit or sometimes quite explicit values that guide and uh, sometimes curse or uh, but bless at the same time. So It's the religious dimension. Does it have to be religious? Yeah, well, by my definition of religion... (laughs) Which is? It does. But, of course, not everybody would agree with my definition of religion. Suppose we don't. Uh, Then, no. But it's that which functionally replaces religion in the lives of those who go with these non-religious myths. So... uh, I tend to think of religious world models as um, the way in which we uh, give ourselves that ultimate... It contains metaphysical contexts, and that contains scientific contexts, and that below that contains ordinary experience of the world contexts. I mean, all contexts are nested, but but by the mythic level I'm talking about, that than which there is no wider. And I think that comes back to one of the things that Bill was getting at when he talked about God not being in context. And that's exactly right, because God provides the context for those myths that are built on a theological, on a theistic uh, model.
0: And not all worldviews are built on By a By no
1: means. The Buddhist, we were. Uh, we have talked informally about uh, his holiness and the Buddhist. Uh, and I hope that sometime we'll talk about the relationship between uh, Buddhist thought and secular thought, because there are secular mythologies, too. Um, and if one could bring, say, Christian and Muslim and Jewish and secular and Hindu and Buddhist, all of these ultimate frames of meaning all of these different mythics myths together and tolerate the plurality multi uh, poly um, myths Uh, but all of them themselves being interpreted from within the metaphysical framework of organicism that values the personalistic that it would seem to me to be uh, a way forward in our postmodern world.
0: That would be a place where one could have calogenesis. In our next Infinite Conversation segment, we'll come back and see how calogenesis relates to all of these big ideas with Dr. Frederick Foray, Bill Russell, I, Paula Gordon. We'll see you then. <music> Frederick Foray is an influential thinker, an accomplished teacher, a musician, and a friend. His work is a valuable contribution to our collective thinking and our future. We thank him. I'm Paula Gordon. I wish you well.